Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 159th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Kelly Shikani. Kelly is a financial advisor and director of wealth management for Lakeside Wealth, a hybrid RIA based in Chesterton, Indiana, right outside Chicago, where Kelly manages a base of nearly 90 million of client assets. What's unique about Kelly, though, is her decision to not hang her hat as a solo advisor and instead navigate existing advisory firms that have already established the necessary infrastructure to operate the firm, allowing her to focus on clients and not needing to live in an eat-what-you-kill grid-based environment. In this episode, we talk in depth about Kelly's career path through the advisory industry under the employee model, from starting out as a trust accountant for ERISA plans with Northern Trust, shifting to become a trust officer with an independent trust company, transitioning to the independent channel under the Wells Fargo Finet platform, and then joining her current firm with an opportunity to grow by servicing clients that the firm acquires in its own efforts to grow. We also talk about how Kelly grew her client base in the early years by conducting women's circles as a way to network and establish relationships in her small town community, the reason she decided to pursue the CDFA designation as a way to initially differentiate herself, and how ultimately she decided the best way to differentiate herself was simply her ability to have a different kind of conversation with her clients in the first place. And be certain to listen to the end, where Kelly talks about how she structures her week to maximize personal productivity, why it's so difficult for most of the employee model to even figure out the right questions to ask when evaluating potential advisor job opportunities, and why it's important to balance a positive desire to be loyal to your firm and clientele with focusing on your own needs to find a fulfilling career and the right place to work as a financial advisor. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Kelly Shikani. Welcome, Kelly Shikani, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to the, the podcast and the discussion today. And, and this theme that's come up recently in, in a few of our podcasts that you know, for all the work that we do coming into this business as advisors and, and trying to find like the, the, the right firm, the right job, the right role, the right employer, like the, the right opportunity, almost none of us seem to ever actually get it right the first time out. That like even with the best of intentions, the best of due diligence, you know, sometimes you don't always know what the firm is really going to be like and what the culture is going to be like. And sometimes you just don't know what the job is going to be like and whether you're actually going to like the thing that you you thought you were going to really like until you do it for a while and then go, eh, I actually don't like this part of the business so much. You know, I, I've started taking a saying now for for people who are coming into the industry, like, you know, if, if you really want to focus on a like finding the right job and finding the right firm, focus on your third job. Because like your first one's going to be wrong. Your second one's going to be a reaction to whatever you didn't like about the first one, but it will probably also be wrong. You'll just be moving to the opposite extreme of whatever you didn't like about the first one. And then maybe by the third one, you will finally find like a role in a firm and a job and a structure that works for you. And it's hard because no one really explains how all the different firms and rules and structures work. You sometimes don't know until you get there. And so I, I know you have, I guess, kind of lived this challenge in a really wide range of the industry from like from trust companies to wirehouses to 
to independent channels. And so just looking forward to kind of talking today about that that dynamic of the the challenge of finding the right firm or, or almost the the frustration like why have we made it so darn hard to just find the right firm and role in the advisor industry well i know from my experience that coming out of college they certainly didn't talk about this industry at all and i know that is changing somewhat but i certainly didn't even know what this was RIA at, at all at the time and coming out of a trust company and going to a wirehouse, I had no idea what that even was. So I think that students today have a much better opportunity to at least be exposed to what that can possibly mean more now than ever. And that was really my struggle coming from, you know, the world of what I had to coming into, you know, I started my early years with um, Wells Fargo on their independent channel, and that was pretty eye-opening. So, so take us through some of this this journey. I guess not even sort of at the Wells end, because I, I think that was where you went. Second, first was Trust Company World. So, I guess just paint the picture for us of like what. What brought you to the advisor industry? What was the I don't know the the appeal or the draw in the first place? And and how did you land where you landed first? You know, when I started out of college, I worked you know Northern Trust, and that was convenient. I lived in Chicago, and Northern Trust was a great company, and they actually had a group of us on the trading floor, and I absolutely loved the high energy. It was fun, but at some point. I moved back to my hometown and working and commuting from Northwest Indiana to Chicago was not going to work for having a family. I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning. I was in Chicago by six. I was in bed by 6 p.m. back up at 4 a.m. That, that just was not going to work for a mom. So I still wanted to be involved in this industry somehow. So once my kids got a little bit older and I was sitting across from somebody who happened to be a CFP, I thought, you know, this interests me, but where can I put this to work? And there happened to be a couple of places in my hometown that hired people in that industry, and it was a trust company. So that's how that started. So how did you land out in in Northern Trust world in the, in the first place though, like what, what started you there? I mean, were you, I don't know, like an accounting finance major in college and then wanted to go into trust accounting world? Like, how did you, how'd you land there? I mean, there's, there's no, there's no shortage of jobs in Chicago. You could have landed in a lot of different industries. Well, I'd love to tell you that I had a bunch of offers out of college, but I didn't. And Northern Trust recruited at Indiana University and I got a job there. So that's where I worked. And they had a trust accounting department and I started in their trust accounting and I really hated sitting at a desk. Mm. And as soon as I had an opportunity to tr do an internal transfer to the trading floor, I took it. And I just really loved working on the floor and I loved the dynamic of the markets. My dad used to do, he worked at the Board of Trade, so I knew that kind of an industry and I just really loved that kind of work. So that's how I got into capital markets was 
working with Northern Trust right out of college. And were you like a business or finance related major or was this just a totally random? No, I was a business major. Okay. Okay. So Northern, you know, good old on-campus recruiting works. Northern Trust shows up and says like, hey, you would like the financial services industry, come talk to us and, and just pulled you in on that basis. Yes, it works. So it was, and it was a great job for a young person. And, you know, the hours were great. You got off at, you know, two thirty, three o'clock. You had your rest of your day. It was perfect. Good old banker's hours. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> so, so you started out in, in trust world, trust accounting wasn't doing it for you because it was too much desk time and not enough people interaction time. So you landed on the, the trading floor. That was fun until you were in Northwest Indiana and commuting horrifically and had to find another option. And so that's what pulled you away from Northern Trust and to say, let's look at something local. Yeah, I, I really liked when I worked with somebody on our personal investments and I saw all the different things you could do, you know, with the with investments, with 401ks, with insurance. And I saw that it all tied together. And I asked this person, how do you do this? How do you become this? And that's when I got interested in this field because I had never heard of that designation before this person had that. So I reached out to the College for Financial Planning and started to tiptoe into these different designations. There was a registered paraplanner. There was this accredited asset management designation. And I remembered as I got these different designations, this gentleman at this college said to me, well, you know, if you get this a designation, you could work for a man who is a CFP. And those were his words to me. And I said, I'm not going to work for any man. And that's when I got my CFP. So, Wait, I, so it was like, you, you can get this other designation and, and work for, I was going to say the man, but like a man. Cause yes. And we wonder why our industry has some you know, yes. gender issues. Yes. It's like you can get this designation and work for a man, or you can get this CFP designation and be the, be the man, be the woman. So you said, I'm getting the CFP. Yes. But that awareness came from, I worked with an advisor who had the CFP designation and thought that looked interesting. Yes. And it, it just really, all the, all the different areas that it encompassed and realizing that once I got the designation, I didn't need to be, I didn't need to go deep in every single one of those areas. I could find an area that really interests me. And I clearly already had an interest in the investment area from my work on the floor. But I found myself looking at the planning piece of that designation. And I really loved pulling all those pieces together. And when I worked at that trust company, learning about the different types of trusts and, and that started to hook me in there. I liked that piece as well. But, you know, things happened in 08, 09, and that's kind of when I moved on the continuum and the Wells Fargo opportunity opened up. So talk to me a little bit more, though, about what, like, what life was like as a, like a CFP, a financial advisor, I'm going to imagine at the time you were probably called a trust officer or something in a, in a trust company. Like what, what does that role look like in practice? Well, there's a lot of reading involved because you're reading a lot of those documents to make sure that what you're doing, you're adhering to the wording within that trust document that you're 
you know, shall pay, may pay, you know, those documents are very specific. And you're not necessarily a lawyer. Exactly. But you still have to. And you're working with a lot of lawyers and, you know, not practicing law because you can't right. do that. So there, there's just a lot of collaboration with families. And granted, we weren't New York City. We weren't Chicago. It's Northwest Indiana. But you're doing, you're doing some of the trust work. But we also had IRAs and we also had, you know, taxable accounts as well. So it was pr- a pretty t- traditional kind of a situation with some trusts and some traditional accounts as well. And so how does it how does it work from a a business development perspective when you're in a trust company environment like that? Is it like are you trying to go out and find trust accounts and people of trust or does it tend to be more inbound like hey, you know, pop pop had this trust and he passed away and now like the trust thing is supposed to happen and we don't know what to do and you're a trust company so y'all do this. I think some of it was sought out like that, and some of it was just IRAs as well. So it wasn't just just trusts. It was, like I said, some of it was just regular IRA business. Some of it was traditional investment accounts. Some of it was self-directed accounts. So it wasn't just one type of account. So it was a little bit of everything and, you know, referrals like everything else. And being a small town, there was, you know, a, a bank you know, there was the big banks and then there was us. So there wasn't a whole lot of competition. So. So trust business as a trust company in a small town tended to be, I guess, essentially more, more inbound or did you still have a lot of like, okay, as a trust officer, you have these business development responsibilities and you have to bring in this much in assets and revenue to, to keep your job every year. Oh, it it was probably a lot of that. My role when I was at that firm was more on the investment side than on the trust side. So I did a lot more of the investment piece of the business at that firm. So we had kind of a an investment list that we maintained and so doing actually doing the portfolio analysis end of what's exactly Mm -hmm. a lot of individual bonds. Back then, it was between 2000 and 2008, people were buying a lot more individual bonds, municipals, corporates. It was more of that back then. You don't see that as much now. So you're in this role of analyzing investments, handling them within a trust company environment, and then 2008 happens? Yeah. Was that, I mean, was that ultimately the the disruptor? I mean, what the, was the just trust company was downsizing because assets went down in the bear market? No, actually, I was involved in a trading error with one of my colleagues, and there was a gender discrimination lawsuit due to a trading error, and I was fired. Oh. And I won the lawsuit, if that makes it, <laughs> makes it any better, but it was a pretty horrible time. I mean, it was probably the lowest point in my career. So, so A, like, there were two traders on this there was a trading error, we're blaming the woman? Well, it was a trading error that involved two people, and there was some backdating of an employee handbook to make the person involved in the error personally responsible for the error. And it came to light, and let's just say I won that Mm. issue. But it was pretty awful. And so does, I mean, does that literally just, put you out of work for a while because you're terminated from the old company. It's kind of hard to get a job in a new one, particularly in the financial services industry when 
you know, they ask you that question, like, have you, you know, have you ever been accused of, of financial accounting or fraud or whatever the other items are? And you're like, well, yes, but it's pending is not, not the best thing to say in an interview. But it, and it wasn't really, I mean, so it wasn't characterized like that because it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, just like on the floor when we had trading errors, it was, you know, you'll, you sell 10 instead of buy 10. It was just an error. Okay. Wasn't fraud. So they weren't. They weren't. They weren't concerned at that end, except then people actually change paperwork to try to shift blame, which gets a little more problematic. Well, the employee handbook was changed to read that you know if there were any trading errors, the person involved was personally responsible. Yeah. And I don't think I would have ever taken the job if I could have been personally responsible for any trading error. That would have been. It would have bankrupt my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just from a practical perspective, like when you're in a a trust company with large dollar amounts involved, just making employees personally liable for trade errors usually isn't really constructive, anyways. Because if it's a significant trade error, it's not like they're going to have the financial wherewithal to make the to make the client good, anyways. Like that's why, well, that's why you have E and O insurance, and that's why you have trading processes and procedures with oversight to hopefully at least minimize training errors from happening. So I think they changed, I'm pretty sure they changed things after that. And I know they had to hire, you know, some HR after that, but it was, it's still, you know, this is a small town Yeah, and I, I've gone on to better things, but it's still one of those things where if do you do DocuSign? And if you ever do DocuSign, it's always like, where have you ever been employed at any of these places? And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you don't get to be too far removed from your memories. Yeah. So. So that had to literally sit you out of the business until the the lawsuit with the firm was resolved. Yeah. Uh-huh. It did. And I could have gone on and I could have taken it further, but I was physically and mentally wiped out. And I just said, you know, I tapped out and said, I'm done. I'm, I won what I needed to win. And I just moved on. And so what was next for you? Like you've, you've done now Northern Trust and you're like on the market floor and doing trading and investing like right on the floor You've now been in the second trust company where you got to do the investing side of things. So what what came next? Then that's when I found Wells Fargo Finance. Okay. And so what what drew you to Wells Fargo Finance? Like what what were you looking for that you didn't go to another trust company or or a similar investment role? Well, at that point I was just pretty excited to get employed. <laughs> It had been a pretty tough it had been a pretty tough time after the last episode I went through and I was pretty shell shocked. So as you can imagine, I was just like, yay, I was just really ready to get back to work and, and do what I loved. And I was really excited to get back to doing something and I met a, a great group of people that were, you know, pretty pretty close to where I lived, which was another component. I didn't want to have to go back to Chicago. And this was a pretty close location. And so, like, what was the idea of of the role going in? Like, were you going in to do another investment style, investment management role that you had been doing previously? Or was this a deliberate, like, no, no, I want to be more on the client side as a, 
as an advisor now? This was, you know, this was complete. This was going to be a real honest to goodness. I was a financial advisor. I was going to be it. And I was, you know, but you go from a trust company where you're regulated by the Department of Financial Institutions out of the state of Indiana. I had no licenses other than my CFP. I had to go through that hell you all call Series 7 and Series 66. I had to get all that stuff because I, I had no licenses because we didn't need them. You know, when we were at the trust company, you didn't need stuff like that. So I had to get all those licenses and get ramped up and get going. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction that, you know, for a lot of us in the advisor world where sort of like the options are broker-dealer or RIA and, and you know, you, you go back and forth between the two or, or, or find your path, that there's not a lot of awareness that there there's sort of this third option out there in trust companies that also have you know people in advisor roles working with clients and and people in investment roles managing and overseeing portfolios but you don't have all these series licenses because you're like you're literally not under SEC and FINRA jurisdiction for that work in the same way you you live under the regulators for trust companies which for the most part I believe is all state regulated one state's trust company overseer at a time yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it really, that was a tough test. I'm not, I remember celebrating that night and wow, that's no joke. Yeah, so I had to go through all that process to get licensed and I got all that done. And so really starting 2010, I had to begin the process of bringing on clients and joining clubs and getting in front of and doing networking and, and getting that process. So what's that like for you? You're now like... 15, 20 years into your career, and now suddenly for the first time are in a, oh, no, 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 here you got to go get your clients. So go get them, Kelly. Now, not really a fan. And <laughs> you know what? They don't really come knocking on your door. It's not, that's not how it works. No, no, unfortunately, not so much. It really is for me, and it will always be about building relationships. And, you know, God love them. My parents were, you know, right there for me. And I appreciated that. But I knew that wasn't was wasn't going to be what sustained me. And I really, really for me, I I'm fortunate that I'm in a, you know, my husband works too. So it wasn't this wasn't was not going to be feeding my family, but was going to be for the right reasons that I reached out to people. And that's how I did it slow and steady. And that was just going to be me. I was not going to do it any other way. And it really has been the way I did it. So, so talk to us a little bit more about what that looked like. You know, you're, you're year one out of the gate at, at Wells Fargo. You got to figure out what the heck you're going to do to start getting some clients without any, or very much background directly in that end of things. You obviously knew the investment world, but hadn't necessarily had a lot of business development responsibility. You're in a, a small town environment. So like, what did you do? what did you do first? Well, I remember joining my local Rotary Club because I knew those people and I knew they would trust me. I joined a lot of the committees. There was a scholarship committee that I participated in because that was something I really cared about. I began mentoring. There was a mentor program that I became a part of because I really cared about that. My kids were in high school and, and busy, so it wasn't like I was 
they needed much help from me. I stayed involved in the things that they were involved in. So people knew what I was involved in as far as my work. So people began to ask about what I did. There was a women's group that I became involved in because those were the people that I really wanted to help. I began doing this divorce designation because that was something I really cared about. And I just pursued things that I knew that I cared about. I joined boards or was asked to join boards that I cared about. And I just continued to work on getting myself into things that mattered to me. And that's, that's what worked for me. Now, I'm not going to say that I was, you know, joining any million dollar round tables or anything like that, but it was a, a slow and steady process that worked. Mostly. Mostly. So where, where were the speed bumps along the way then? I didn't find myself really enjoying. I felt that at Wells Fargo, there was a push towards products that provided more of a payout from their perspective. And I didn't, I, that was never going to be something that I was willing to do. And that's kind of where I've mentioned, I spoke about this grid. And I understand that it's expensive to educate and maintain advisors. But, you know, I'm, I wasn't willing to sell products that provided more of a payout to enhance my month. And that was always a feeling that seemed to be prevalent there. And it, it got to be more and more prevalent the more I became aware how it worked. And I just, it, it just got to the point where that just wasn't going to work for me. So the whole dynamic of, you know, here at a or you know, you're you're at a fifty percent payout or whatever it might have been in the wirehouse environment, but you know you can you can get to a fifty two percent payout as long as you do this much in production this month, or as long as you do this much in production, but you have to sell these particular products on the list for at least this dollar amount in order to get to the next tier on the grid, like the those those kinds of um, sales incentives. Well, and I, and I don't even know if I was privy to that much knowledge because I didn't own that business. I was just an employee of the owner. But there were, you know, obviously, if you did a, a variable annuity, it paid an upfront commission. Therefore, if you get, you know, even if you're only getting 30% of that, you're getting 30% of that one-time payout. Right. So, you know, I was always told that, you know, well, you'd, you'd have more money if you'd done that. Well, they didn't need that. I'm not going to sell it if they don't need it. And it was always that feeling that I wasn't doing the right product mix. But I'm not going to do it if it's not right. And it was just always this wait. And I just wasn't going to do it. So did you did you know that was an, like an issue or a concern going in into the brokerage environment? Because I know like you'd come from a trust company world where you know, they, they don't have their own at least for the most part, they don't have their own proprietary products. So like you don't, you don't have those same kinds of grid structures and grid incentives in the trust company side. So did, did, did you know this was coming and just had a plan to navigate it and then didn't like the environment or didn't even know that this was going to happen until you got there and was like, Oh, so this is how it works here. I honestly don't think I even thought about annuities at all. I mean, granted, I'm, I know I had to study and pass that part of the CFP test 
because I had my CFP when I went there. But I just don't, I mean, we didn't have that product. You know, it's not something we could do at the trust company. So it wasn't something that I was running into very often. So I certainly didn't know how much they paid or what their, you know, I didn't know any of those things. So you don't, if you're not if you're not in something regularly, you're certainly not going to know what they pay. So it, I just remember sitting across from the owner and this matrix was put in front of me and, you know, first part goes to Wells, this part goes to me, and then this part goes. And I was like, you know what? I just really want to help people. And <laughs> just she just laughed at me. And I mean, I, and, and that sounds really Pollyanna, but I, I just, I wasn't very smart about it. But you were at least getting some clients and some business coming in because I know you 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 stayed for a while. Yes. So where was where was business coming from? Like what was what was working for you? Probably the networking with the women's groups and the divorce designation because people you know that's a very unique designation in in this part of the area. That's the that's the CDFA. Designation, yes. Mm-hmm. And so you had done that just out of the the curiosity, like, hey, this looks interesting, or did you have a pretty specific strategic plan? Like, I I want to be in this divorce niche because I think that's how I can build my practice. Well, I you know, in, in my own family situation, I had seen my mom go through the process, and I know how difficult it was for her to navigate divorce. And I think that once you've seen somebody kind of question their decision making, and you know that when people go through divorce, how emotional it is, when they make the decisions that they do, you know, as financial advisors, we can really help them with the tax piece and just helping them say, you know, that one is a little bit more liquid or do you really want to keep the house? And just helping them walk through those decisions, it, it's such an impact we can make that I, I knew that that's where my heart would be really helpful for people. So that's why I picked that. And I have found that it's just really helpful for men and women to have somebody just kind of off in the wings, providing them with a little bit of insight. And while it's not always the happiest piece to be involved in, I I like being able to provide some guidance. I was going to say, I know for some people that they don't like working in the divorce realm because it, it tends to be really stressful situations, or at least for some clients that it's really stressful. And the ones who need the most help tend to have the most messy, complex situations, which are the ones that have more drama and more stress associated with them. So was that daunting for you or a positive challenge or just didn't phase you? Well, I I don't have, like, I wouldn't even say 10% of what I do is in the divorce space. I've got some great friends in a mastermind group that a lot of their business is dedicated to this piece. And I have gotten some of my business from this and just being able to offer advice internally in our office on reading quadros and helping them with quadros and just being able to give them a little bit of advice because, you know, Lakeside's a huge team and they know that this is an area that I have a special affinity for. So I think that just having an additional knowledge about this is just helpful and 
Indiana is not like where you're from, where there's people doing collaboration and mediation and all kinds of things. We're still kind of putting up a, a stiff arm to a lot of that <laughs> in the state. So they're not pulling me into a lot of things just yet. So help me understand more of how the like the early traction got going for you in in getting clients. You weren't necessarily like all out marketing divorce services, but you had this divorce designation, you're involved in in women's groups. Like what was a what did it typically look like for actually getting getting initial clients when you're trying to build traction from zero? Well, I think being involved in in different clubs helped me. Different women's clubs helped me. We had things around our different counties where I would go to different meetings to talk to people. I would do like these women's circles. I would do those at non-for-profits. I would do them at our office and I would do them for existing clients and then for for prospects and for centers of influence because I wanted people to see that I was a different type of advisor. So so what were what were women's circles? They're an opportunity for women to get together and talk about money and money issues in a safe setting. Normally we start talking about money and values. We talk about, you know, your earliest memories around money. We can talk about building resilience. We can talk about having difficult conversations. We can talk about, you know, your thoughts around long-term care. We've brought in estate plan attorneys to talk about why you need wills. There's been different, many different topics, and we've had a lot of support from Dimensional. But, you know, Eleanor Blaney and Elizabeth Deton and Candace McGarvey, they're the ones that really started it for us with this Directions for Women back in 2014. And they've really been the ones to champion it, you know, way back when. So, so the idea is you're you're going to do a you're going to do like a marketing event for for women. So you're going to host this women's circle. You're going to invite people to it. It's a chance to talk about money and have these conversations and and hopefully an opportunity for you to then start establishing a relationship with people who are there. Yes, and and they they really are phenomenal. Uh, you know, if if you get ten people there, and ten is a really good size, I've had as small as seven. I've had as many as eighteen, and that's really much too big. But you'd be really surprised how women learn from each other in these settings, and when they find out they're not you know alone, and they're really there's a lot of people like them and making similar mistakes and making similar progress, it, it really changes their perspective. And it really meant a lot to me to, to see them bond with each other. And I've done as many as four a year, and sometimes I just do two, but it's really an opportunity for them to get more comfortable coming into our space, our financial office, first of all, and then for them to feel like they can ask questions and not be intimidated. But it really doesn't have to be just for women. It can be for men. I just happen to do them at this time just for women. And and where were you like finding women to do this? Like do you, you know, by mailing list, were you networking your way to this? Were you like doing other things to to market it? Like how do you how do you get people in the room to have these conversations they're not necessarily used to having? Well, now we do them 
you know, at our firm, if people add women to our list and keyword them women's circle. So right now it's really easy to do it at, at the firm now. Sure. But when you were, when you're getting started, everything referral based is easy after you have yeah, lots of clients exactly. to give you referrals. It's always hard early on when you're trying to get started. Well, when I first started doing it, I, I wanted to have at least three people that I, I felt pretty comfortable with. So three, three clients and, I had three, at least, that I felt really comfortable with. And then I asked them to bring somebody. And then maybe I had one or two, like a CPA that I really liked and an, an estate planning attorney that I felt would be a good referral source. And then that was it. So, I mean, if you can get 10 people in the room and then a couple will probably, you know, cancel. And then from there, you know, they usually want to come back again. So you start with your base like that. And it's usually pretty easy to replicate it. And then I've offered it to, you know, non-for-profits and they're usually very happy to do it for their staff and you just get really comfortable doing it and it just kind of blossoms. And so how does it, like, how does the, the women's circle gathering itself work? Like, is, is everybody coming together for an, for an hour, for two or three hours? Is this like a full day workshop thing? Like, how do you actually structure the the gathering? Well, I can provide you with kind of an outline of the basic guidelines for calling a circle, but there's a wonderful book that I'll also give you a reference to. It's Pure Spirit. Christina Baldwin and Anne Linnea, I think, is the name of the people that wrote the book called The Circle Way. But there's a real structure to having a circle, even though it sounds kind of willy-nilly. But you actually do go in a circle. And there's, you know, a check-in, a check-out, and there's usually a, a focused topic that you talk about. But it's a really great way to ensure that people are listened to, because I think that we find that a lot of times when people talk, people are thinking in their head a way to respond instead of just listening. So there's like a, a talking stick and things of that nature so that you really focus on listening. And we have a way to make sure that, you know, we watch the time. But I don't think that you would ever spend more than two hours in this at a circle. That's usually about the amount of time we spend. I personally do them like 5.30 to 7, but I have some friends in San Francisco that do it, and sometimes they do them at lunchtime because of the traffic there. Right. Well, when, whenever people are willing to come to a room and, and hopefully not be so road rage that they can actually relax and engage with the, with the event itself. Exactly. And so it sounds like a, a big part of business development and getting clients for you early on, like you after the first few, because you always got to get a first few, invite some clients, they bring some friends, you do one of these women's circle conversations. If they have some good conversations, one or several of them want to follow up and talk to you more and they become potential clients. And then you do another one and they invite their friends and you just kind of repeat the cycle. Was that was that the structure? That's part of it. But the one of the things that I really want to impress upon you is that it's more about creating a sense of, you know, we're different. This We communicate different. We listen different. And it's not all about business development because I don't think you're going to go to every advisor on the street and find that they do or host women's circles. And that, right. that's, that's kind of the thing that we want to 
say very clearly because a lot of times when you go to a training for a women's circle, there's going to be people there saying, well, can you tell me how much business you've gotten from a women's circle? And it's not just about, you know, I got, you know, three, $2 million clients because it's not that if you were able to be a fly on the wall and hear some of the conversations that come out of these circles, it makes me want to stay being a financial advisor so much longer because of the the content that comes out of these circles and these women, and they're just so impactful. So this is an interesting framing that like it wasn't necessarily literally the 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 business development of the of the event or the activity as much as doing the activity in the first place differentiates you because people see a conversation, a way that you communicate and engage with others and say like, wow, my, my financial advisor doesn't talk to me this way and doesn't have these conversations. And just, just this recognition of like, oh, Kelly's different than other financial advisors I've met in the past, which to me is, just, is the essence of like, that's how you start establishing differentiation so that you can eventually win business simply because people see you are very different than anybody else. So if that's what they like, you you are the only person that does that. Well, and the challenge is that we invite clients across the firm and we want them to know that Lakeside is different because Lakeside is holding these events for our clients and anything that happens in circle stays in the circle. So we don't, I don't share the conversations so there could be clients there for any of the 18 advisors. So they, they know that, you know, if something said, I'm not going to go back and say, well, you know what she said? No, this is, you know, we're, we're holding this space sacred. And this is, you know, we, we want to offer this space for, for you to, to become comfortable no matter what. But it's still, this is still Las Vegas. We're not telling. So... So how did this process go for you in terms of trying to get get clients and and develop business? Like was there a was there a point after you were in for a ways where you finally said like okay, I th- I think it's this is going to work, I'm going to make it or did it always feel like it was on the line about whether you were going to whether you were going to make it as a hey, I just want to help people and and the manager literally laughed at you? Well, I I I think that my turning point when I decided to leave Wells Fargo, I I had reached a point where I was stopping the business development there because I didn't want to bring anybody into that space anymore. I wasn't happy with where things were going. I wasn't happy with what I was hearing. I wasn't happy I just wasn't happy there. So that's when I reached out to Lakeside and just, I needed to make a change. And and that's when that happened. Well, I guess that's certainly a a fatal moment to the business. Like when you're literally not comfortable to go get clients because you're not comfortable with the firm you're at or affiliated with, like it's, it's, it's time to find another firm, (laughs) whatever it is, whatever the context is. I've seen a lot of advisors over the years where they've, they've, struggled with business development and what it really came down to was they were so not comfortable with the firm they were at that they were basically self-sabotaging their own business development because they didn't actually really want to win any clients because they didn't feel good about the firm that they were going to bring the clients to. But 
hadn't made the connection of like, that's why they were struggling with business development. And they didn't even realize that they were, they had become their own blocking point because they needed to change firms, not, not just like find new business development strategies. Yeah, I think that's where I was because it was, I, I was finding myself hesitant to move forward and I just couldn't do it. And I knew that I still was very much wanting to do the work, just not do it there. So, And so what did the practice look like at, at that point that you're now deciding like, okay, I'm going to make a change. I've got some base of clients. Like what did, what did you have in terms of clients at that point? And were you looking at bringing them with you? Like we're, where did you stand at the moment that you said, I think I've got to make a change? Because for a lot of people, they they never actually take that leap. Like there was something that you 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 took the leap that a lot of people don't. Well, I didn't I hadn't signed a non-compete. So I, I must have known that there was something internally up as far as that was going on. Well, I guess to some extent, being on the Finet platform, which is sort of the least partially independent, you're not you're not quite tucked in as much as the the core Wells Fargo full employee model probably ended out giving you a little bit more flexibility on the departure as well. There was really no fight at all. I mean, other there was a little bit of a fight, but I just pretty much signed whatever that broker protocol was. And, you know, one month later, you know, after four years of being at, it was about five years at Wells Fargo Finet. And then I just... I'm not going to say it was seamless, but, you know, from November of 14 to, you know, I think it took about two or three months to move everything over to Lakeside. It was done. So what was the, what was the size of the practice and the client base at that point when you decided to make the change? Uh, 18 or 19 million. Okay. And so, you know, good, good, healthy base, particularly in an independent channel to, you know, you can earn good dollars and make a living and have a base of clients you can actually get referrals from to grow further. So how did you decide where to go next? Because you now, like, you were at Northern Trust for a while, you were at a local trust company for a while, you'd done the the large firm thing at, at Finet, your many years of experience in the business. So what what were you looking for at that point? Like, how were you deciding about what to do and where to go next? Well, my sister-in-law worked at Lakeside. She was on their qualified plan side. And I called her and I told her I was just really, I was I was kind of scared. I didn't know what to do. There weren't really many options. And, you know, you, you really care about your clients and you want the best for them. I wasn't really concerned about me as much. I was really concerned about where, where could I go? You know, I felt like I needed to go somewhere. So I can remember it. I can remember the day. I can just remember calling and she got me uh, like a 30 minute sit down with one of the partners. And I went into this room and sat down and told him, I just have, I just don't know what to do. And within, you know, a week or so I had an interview there and I met with a bevy of them. And, you know, it was an all day affair and in and out and in and out and in and out, all these people come in and out. And it just, from there on, it was, it was a pretty fast pace after that. And I had no idea what was, I had no idea what was coming because I had never had to repaper anybody or do transfer paperwork before. And it was, it's a locomotion. (laughs) Yeah. So, so how was that 
process of just actually going through a client move, trying to move out of out of Wells Fargo? It was very hard. It was very emotional too. It was very, you know, there were people there that I left behind, so to speak, that I really were friends for people I really cared about. Some of the employees I really cared very deeply about. So that was very hard. But, you know, I knew I had to do what was best for for me and for the clients for long term. So I knew that was really important. And it just, you know, I knew that I, I knew I could get it done. And I, I'm kind of a type A person. I, I was just going to get it done. I was going to check all the boxes and, and go through the motions. But I can I cannot. It's so confusing to somebody that, once again, that doesn't un, did not understand this whole, you know, RIA, IRI. It was just so confusing. I did not understand it for the longest time because they had a broker dealer and they had their own investment management. And it was just very confusing. So, it was a lot. Yeah, again, the 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 challenges of all the different channel segmentations and overlaps. You're right. You know, and try to understand. Yeah. Did you have any concern that clients weren't going to come with you? Sure, absolutely I was because we were going from, you know, Wells Fargo had this you know, individual investments and, you know, individual stocks. And, you know, we're a dimensional firm with, you know, we used different allocations and we, you know, we actually, you know, of course we identify everything from capital preservation to growth, but I then had to explain, you know, who's dimensional and we had, I had to learn all that and it was just a lot. Yeah. That's quite a shift to go from, uh, you know, like we're doing individual stocks and bonds to let me, let me introduce you to DFA and, and frankly, kind of a, a DFA story that's sort of negative on the things that you were doing previously with clients at Wells Fargo. Right. Right. So how was that conversation? Like how do you how do you break that conversation to clients? It was a lot of education. I got a lot of support from the team. They they really helped me. There was, you know, and Dimensional spends a lot of time educating you as well. And, you know, I had heard about them before, so I was familiar with their story. So that helped a lot. But as you can imagine, it was pretty overwhelming. But there was a lot of people to help you do it. So I'm thankful that it was pretty much 100%. I didn't have to, I, I don't think, but a couple stayed behind and it was the right couple. So yeah, the, 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 the ones where they tell you they're not coming with you, to the new firm and you go, Oh, Oh, oh darn. <laughs> oh, exactly. Were there any clients that really did have particularly hard conversations that that push back on on DFA or just the contrast of DFA versus what you were doing with them previously? No, not at all. You know, obviously you have to manage some tax tax issues. So sure. some of it it couldn't happen. But no, absolutely not at all. It was a pretty seamless event. So was that a no, was it was that a surprise of like Wait, I was doing all this stuff for you guys for so long. Like, why? Why aren't you more upset? I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, and you know, on on the Wells Fargo side, they had a lot of, you know, we had a lot of it managed anyway. So it wasn't like I was the one, you know, picking out all that. So right. no, I was I was grateful, and I'm I'm grateful that we have a team doing it now because that is a lot of work, and I'm glad to be aware of it. I'm glad not to be in it. Is, is how I think about it now. It's it's just a piece that I don't want to have to be dealing with day-to-day anymore. So I guess to the extent that, you know, Wells gives you 
various in-house and and third-party separate account managers that the transition for clients is uh, for you is really more of okay, I used to have a team that managed things this way and now we're going to work with a different manager that manages these things that way. But like they were already used to the fact that you had other managers involved that were doing things as part of the process. The only distinction was, okay, I guess this is just going to be a different strategy. Exactly. And the and you just went from stock and bond building blocks to DFA building blocks. Exactly. And a lot of times the fees went down, the internal costs were lower, institutional share classes. So it was pretty, it was pretty much, if not exactly the same or cheaper. So I was, you know, making sure that everybody was getting a better deal, you know, for the, for the costs involved, because I didn't want anybody to feel like it was going to, they were going to be in a worse position. I guess that's the sort of the nice thing about the, those shifts sometimes is when the, when the math works out that it's going to be less expensive anyways, it makes the rest of the conversation kind of a lot easier. You still got to explain the value, but it's it's easier to explain, oh, it's a better value and and it's actually cheaper is a lot easier than, well, it's, it's better value, but it, it is going to cost you a little more. But let me explain why that's still worthwhile. And it also helped that at that time, Wells Fargo had a lot of headline risk. And, you know, so the, the move at that time just, it just helped out that they were not doing themselves any favors. And was some of the headline stuff, so I'm just trying to remember, like were, were the the new, like the fraudulent new account openings scandal for Wells, like was that, was that currently news at the time or that broke a little later? It was around then. So it was a lot of that was going on. And I think they were the credit cards, credit card stuff. And it was enough of that that it made it seem like, oh, okay, let's go. Yeah, it's it's an interesting shift, I think, for a lot of the, uh, well, a lot of the wirehouses, but certainly Wells seems to have suffered from it more, just from the from the headlines lately. That you know, I think there was a world for a long time where one of the big assets of being at a wirehouse was this large national or global brands. You know, these companies have put a hundred plus years since their marketing and branding, and you know, not notwithstanding some of the industry you know, barbs that we throw at each other across the channels, like you know, the the large national brands have, you know, spend a lot of money on large national branding for a reason. Like it, it does work from a consumer trust perspective until you have giant national scandals. Right. And I feel like there is this, this interesting shift right now where for a long time, like wirehouse brands were an asset and advisor release decide like do I want the company name on my business card or do I think I can I can be an independent and, and work on my own and have clients just buy me for for kind of my name and what I do but it's very different when the wirehouse brand asset turns into a brand liability and you're actually explaining to clients now like why you know like oh yeah you read that in the Wall Street Journal but like we didn't do that to you <laughs> I promise <laughs> That's an awkward conversation to have to have, even if it's true and you didn't do any of the bad things. Like, that's not a conversation anybody wants to have with their clients. Exactly. So, what did the structure look like as you were going to Lakeside? Like, you lived this trust company world of of salaries and bonuses. You lived the the Wells Fargo world of of grids and you know the incentives to move up the grid. Then suddenly you're moving out to Lakeside. You're you're into the independent broker dealer channel under a large 
firm in that environment. So what, tell me about that transition and like what, what, what sort of structure you were going to at Lakeside? Back to where I kind of knew what was going on. I mean, it was a salary and on occasion bonuses. And I, I think we all knew that, you know, bonuses can happen and then bonuses sometimes don't happen. And then from time to time, your salary is adjusted. I mean, there are, you know, we have support advisors, we have senior advisors, we have, you know, so you kind of can move along the continuum as you progress in your career. So there's obviously salary changes as you move along the, you know, the career path. So, you know, those things happen. And then, you know, most likely their salary ranges at the different career levels, but it's, that's how it's done. We're all on salary. And, you know, interesting. That's how it is. So, was that a hard change when you're in a world of, you know, being on grid and getting percentages of revenue and moving to a world of where you're going to be on salary instead? You know, I think that if I had been some hundred million dollar producer, when I had been at Finet, maybe that had been would have been the case. But I'm just beginning to get to that level now, so I'm not. That's not me right now. I'm I manage about ninety million in assets. So I think when you're a part of an ensemble like this, you get so much support. We have so much flexibility that you have to realize that there is, you know, the structure here allows for a lot of support. So it's just a different type of situation. You don't, like you said, we don't have this eat what you kill mentality. We're all here to support each other. It's just different. I know that now going in, I, I don't, you know, I, at least my eyes are wide open. I don't have that, you know, deer in the headlights look like I did when I sat down at Wells Fargo. Like what is a grid? Right. And so is that part of the preference of just did grid and percentage payouts for a while? I'd rather be back in salaried environment land. Just don't like that variable payout structure. I don't. I really don't know. But I'm. I'm. I'm certainly glad. I'm glad to know where I'm at. I, I think it's a good exercise to know what you bring to the firm. I know that advisors aren't cheap. You know, I have a CFP that you know my designation costs money annually. My FPA. Membership costs money. The E&O costs money. My computer, the software, the risk lies, everything costs money. So, I mean, I think that we all need to know what we cost. So then we need to know what, you know, what do we bring? And there, there's this give and take for, you know, being employed. So the expectation of what you should receive, there, there needs to be a balance to that process, and you do, you know, a survey of salaries and and I think that's an important thing for everybody to be aware of. Yeah, it I don't know, it's one of the challenges in the advisor world that I don't know, maybe we'll maybe we'll do some follow-up content on on nerds eye view on this at some point. That so on the one hand, there, there's all this obsession and focus around, at least for some people, around switching platforms and trying to get higher payouts and maximizing your your payout and who has the 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 payouts with the with the highest grids but at the end of the day it's it's actually still a a pretty decently efficient system that you know you 
You go to a firm that has higher grid payouts, it's usually because they give you less in support and there's more things that you're going to need to hire and do for yourself, which is fine. But you know they, they can take a larger percentage of your grid or you can keep more of your grid and then you can pay your own expenses and, and your net often kind of comes out pretty similar. Because just the the cost of running an advisory business, the cost of running an advisory business, and the the portion that goes to overhead, and the portion that goes to advisors, and the portion that goes to profits, at the end of the day, is remarkably stable across most most firms in the industry. Really, from wirehouses all the way down. You know, the the I know a lot of advisors that criticize wirehouses as having you know these like often thirty five to forty five percent payouts at least until you get to the the really high end of the grid. But then if you go to look at a large independent RAA and a benchmarking study, you'll see that the average percentage of revenue that gets paid to advisors is usually right around 35 to 45%. And like the the math basically adds up to the to the same thing. You know, obviously individuals sometimes have a little bit of a different situation where they can maybe play the system a little and, and make the math work out slightly better in their favor. But it, to me, it's just it's often striking how whether you're in a salaried environment or a grid payout or a comp based on revenue payout or the rest, that the math is pretty similar almost wherever you go and places where you get higher payouts usually means you're absorbing more of your own costs because the, the net is still the net. <laughs> and it's kind of similar at the end of the day. You know, I think I talked to you about all the licenses that we have to pay for now, that's just this tech spend. And it's it's just getting worse. I mean, there's just everybody wants to to look at your ADV and assess by your, you know, if you're series seven license. And it's just, you know, the red tails, you know, it's just it's a lot. So if we all put a price tag, if we walked in the door and we had to put a price tag on every you know, what all of us cost. I think it would be eye-opening for all of us to recognize, you know, what we cost and what we bring, and it would be an interesting conversation to be made aware of. Yeah, particularly as technology plays more and more of a role in a lot of firms, e-money and riskalyze, and others are just saying like, "Hey, you got uh, you got five registered people on your ADV. We're charging you for five licenses because we figure they're all going to touch the software at some point, and you know whether they actually do or not, like." that's their that's their pricing structure and it just becomes ultimately part of the cost of doing business that if you need the software to run your firm the the software has a cost and if you need the staff infrastructure to run the firm the staff has a cost and and you you need office space and office space has a cost and and all of that adds up at the end of the day and you still get back to a a pretty similar and consistent you know here's how much it costs you in overhead to run an advisory firm and Here's how much it costs to pay advisors to do the work, and here's the profits that are left over. And those, those three buckets stay pretty stable across the spectrum. Right. So where does your practice sit today as it's currently structured? So as of today, I'm right around $89 million for assets that I'm responsible for. So that's quite a leap and change having come on board with about $19 million as you were leaving Wells Fargo. So is that like growth got going for you? Is that because part of the salaried role is managing like clients of the firm that the firm provides? Like how does how does that work? What was that growth path for you? Well, part of the growth path was that we acquired a practice in 2018 that I was responsible for absorbing. So that was 
50 million of it. So <laughs> I'm good. I'm not that good. So <laughs> a lot of it was that practice. So we took over that practice in 2018 and onboarded those clients. And that's been, you know, a two-year project. And we're still, you know, there's still another year on that before that advisor fully retires. So that's been a, you know, quite a effort there. So, so what does that look like from your perspective when you're in more of an, a employee salary model? Like you, you just sort of get the news one day from the firm, like, Hey, we've, we've acquired this practice and there's going to be uh, a couple dozen clients coming your way. So get ready. That, well, <laughs> Pretty much that. <laughs> pretty, pretty much that. That was pretty. That sounded pretty good. I did meet the advisor. We met for lunch, and we talked. And you know, just she wanted to meet me and see what I was like, and see what my you know philosophy was. And then, pretty much from there, it was you know we we had a list. We met with the clients. Some of the clients took one meeting. Some of the clients took two meetings. And some were in their home. Some were at her office. Some were at our office. And then it's just been trying to mold them into lakeside clients and make them feel happy with how we do how we work and and doing it that way and it's been a lot harder than i thought it would be just because you know when you naturally acquire clients you kind of meet people that are attracted to you when you acquire a practice those were clients that were naturally attracted to her so it's sometimes it's just I find myself working harder because they they didn't naturally like me. So it's just harder. That's an interesting point. So you have to so you have to do a lot a lot more to win them over. Yes. So what have you ended up like what what have you ended up doing just to try to to try to win them over and navigate that? Well, I do what I always do, which is I always do, you know, the financial planning the and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, when you can really be yourself and just be natural, it's just so much easier. But when you have to try harder, it's just yeah. like walking into a cold room. You're like, God, I don't want to be here. So it's just a little bit harder to turn it on for meetings when you're trying to win somebody over. It's just it's just a lot harder. It's gotten a lot easier. But I'm not sure that these clients would have naturally picked me, but I'm hoping it's getting better for them as well. So, so walk us through what that meeting looks like when you're going in with the original advisor and you were, you were the, you were now the, the newbie, the new advisor, obviously you're not literally new. You've done this for many years of experience, but you're the new stranger to them. What do you what do you do in that first meeting to try to make the connection and win them over? Honestly, I'd just be myself and she would normally just explain my background and what I've done and where I've been and the different experiences I've had. And to be quite honest, the CFP designation has sold me a lot. That seems to have a lot of shine to it for people. And I think that it's been really helpful. She, she didn't have it previously, the, the advisor that you're taking over for. Correct. Interesting. So it's just what it's a, it's a credibility marker for them. Yes. 
she is, you know, much smarter than I am. She's got a really strong tax background and really started in insurance. And I think starting in insurance and having a tax background is really a huge, huge thing for anybody that starts in this advisory business. But the CFP, it's just like sparkle dust sometimes that just works. Interesting. Interesting. So is that something that gets communicate in advance just gets communicated in the meeting like you know you get induced as Kelly Shikani the 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 CFP and and like the the credibility has been endowed yes and then we usually talk about how we do the e-money software and i i might you know show that in a client meeting and how we're going to transition them to the financial planning software and how she previously hadn't used that. And this will be a nice add on. And then we might walk them through initial risk allies. And, and she, she's very gracious about saying this, these are things that she hadn't used before. And now that they'll have access to this and aren't they so lucky. And, you know, it's things like that, that she's been really gracious to, you know, sell as benefits to their, her affiliation with Lakeside and the clients, I mean, really, I, I would say 98% retention on the transition with her book. Well, I think the way you're, like what you're describing makes an important point as well that, you know, for any of these kinds of transitions, one of the biggest, one of the biggest drivers of, of success in the succession transitions is just the the advisor who's departing and their their ability to talk well and talk up their successor or their acquirer or whoever's taking over. And and it's hard because I, I I've seen a lot of advisors, I've even been in some meetings watching this happen where like you you want to hand off a client and it's hard not to keep trying to come back in as the person who's led that client relationship for a long time. And if you keep coming in and trying to take the leadership role, it undermines the person who's taking over. And then the clients lose confidence in the person that's taking over. The The ones that do best, I find, really are the the scenarios that you're, you're describing when, you know, the person who's handing off clients to you just keeps saying, you know, Lakeside's great, and here's all the new things you're going to get. And Kelly's going to be wonderful, and she's got her CFP designation. She's going to do all this planning work for you that I wasn't able to do for you because clients aren't really sure how to interpret the search situation until the lead advisor says, "No, no, Lakeside's great, and Kelly's going to be wonderful, and you're going to be well taken care of." And then people start to relax, right? And it's in, and I think that it's gone really remarkably well with that. So I'm hopeful and. It's, it's just, and it's, it's stretched me. And the whole reason I came to Lakeside is that I wanted to be surrounded by people that were smarter than me. You know, I don't want to be the, the only person in an office. I never, never wanted that. And I wanted to be people that were talking over my head a lot. And that was really important. So, so as you look back on this journey and all the, all the different turns along the way like what what surprised you the most about navigating your own career track over the years i'm kind of surprised that it took me this long to figure out where i wanted to be finally i'm usually pretty laser focused and and very loyal and i always figured wherever i started i would be there 
you know, like the old person and get the gold watch and just be there forever. And it's right. It's surprised me that it kind of took me this long to figure it out. Yeah. Again, that's to me the the interesting thing about these journeys for us advisors. Even when you you like you really think you know where you want to be, it just doesn't necessarily turn out that way in the long run. And then you go somewhere else. You're like, no, no, this is the place I'm going to be. And then that one doesn't necessarily turn out well either. And that it's usually not until the third or the fourth transition. I find at least by the third, we usually are getting a sense of what we want. But even then, it sometimes takes a fourth leap before we finally find the place that that we can you know, like park for the long run, park until the end, park until the gold watch. That it's just a, a, it's hard to really get a sense of what all the options and the channels are really like until you spend some time in several of them and find which ones you actually like being involved with. I agree. So what does the typical like week look like for you at this point? Well, I really try to keep Mondays and Fridays like just for getting stuff prepared for the week. And my person who helps me with everything, Mindy, she knows that I like to schedule meetings just Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And I think somebody dreamed up this calendar thing, but I like just to do my meetings on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So I block those. We do acuity. So those are my client meeting days. So I like meetings just on those days. So acuity is the the scheduling software where you just give clients a link and they can schedule their own meetings on the available times and dates. Yeah. And that's, and, and it's been, a, that's been one of our initiatives from 2019 that we implemented. So we really like it. It's been very helpful. And so I got to ask, I mean, do you, do you ever get clients where like, yeah, Kelly you went to your calendar, like they're all Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I was kind of hoping to meet with you on, on Friday. Can I, can I have a Friday meeting? Absolutely. And I absolutely do. I do nighttime sometimes and I even do Saturdays. So I'm an awful, I'm an awful scheduler. <laughs> so you'll, you'll grant them the exceptions, but you at least give them the, ch- you know, the, the choices as initially presented are, would you like Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? <laughs> I try. <laughs> how, how often do they just take you up on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday thing? And how often do they ask for exceptions? I would say 90% of the time. It's just that I have some people that, you know, you always have your exceptions, but I, I really, I'm really doing much better about not doing, you know, nighttime appointments or anything too terribly off the, off the regular, but I, I'm not, I'm not too, too crazy about that, but yes, I do try and stick to a schedule. So what pulled you in the direction of doing that kind of scheduling structure in the first place? Well, I think as a firm, we just tried to be a little bit more intentional about having something online for scheduling and getting away from doing these, you know, trying to do phone tag. It was just getting ridiculous. So we've just found that this, you know, providing them with options and giving them the opportunity to schedule phone appointments has been really successful. And what about the decision to try to push all of them to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and and not do Monday, Fridays. Now that's a Kelly issue. I don't know what the other advisors are doing, but that's <laughs> what I, that's what I do. I think everybody tries to work within the confines of their calendar and what they like to do. But I, I, I try to do my planning work on Fridays and then, you know, keep Mondays open for, you know, internal meetings. So as you look back over this, this journey and all the different steps, like what do you know now that you wish you could go back and, and tell you from 
10 years ago as you're leaving the trust company and trying to figure out where to, where to start building as an advisor? You need to stay true to how you want to do it. I mean, there's no, there's no reason to try and do it like somebody else does. I, I, I have sometimes found myself being told that, you know, you need to do this or you need to do that. And it's not me. I mean, I, I am a unique advisor. I am not, once again, I think women do, at least I do things differently. I, my client meetings are different. I, I just, I have to be true to the way I do things. And I've been successful with clients this way. And I think that everybody needs to find their way to communicate with clients and to be successful. You don't, don't let people tell you you need to do it a certain way. So were there particular, uh, I don't know, conflict points of thing, things you do your way that you like doing that others kept pushing back on? I, I think that, you know, talking a certain way or bringing in certain documents to, to talk about a certain, you know, market-related things and things like that. And I just don't, I just don't find the need to talk about things like that very often in client meetings. I just find myself doing things quite differently than other people do. And that's okay because my clients seem to respond fine that way. Everybody gets to do it their way as long as the client is happy. And I think that you need to be true to yourself. And when I when I mentor other people coming into this business that are that ask me questions, that's what I tell them. I, I, I don't think everybody needs to read from the same playbook when it comes to being an, an advisor. And that's why I think this podcast is so important because you get to listen to the different ways people do this position. Yeah, I, to me, one of the challenges for the, I don't know, for the industry overall is is there's, as, as Alan Moore likes to say, there's, there's a lot of shooting that happens. You should do this. You should do that. People say you should do this and that. Then we start to should on ourselves. You know, I feel like I got to do this thing because everyone says that you're supposed to do this thing or do it this way. And I think as you highlighted, like it, it, it gets people out of, out of alignment. It gets them off their authentic selves. And then you don't feel as comfortable with what you're doing. And when you don't feel comfortable, that's actually when your business starts falling apart. Cause as you said, like when, once you've decided you're not actually happy with where you are and what you're doing, like you're not going to get any more clients because you're going to block yourself if you're not actually happy to bring the client on into that environment. So uh, it's been interesting to me, even as we've done the podcast, that for the the range of folks that we've had, virtually every episode, there's always a few listeners that that sort of write in and comment of like, you don't like that person's business or don't think they've they're they're doing it well or you know would never go that direction. It's like. Well, that's cool. Like, you be you, <laughs> go your direction. But that doesn't make the other advisor, the other person, wrong for going their direction. Like to me, that's part of what's so interesting about this business is that we can all make these practices that are a reflection of ourselves and what we want to do and what's important to us. And and it just means you end up with a zillion different advisory firms that all do it differently, or or people that navigate their careers the way that it's meaningful for them to navigate their careers. Exactly. So what was the low point for you on the, on the journey? Well, definitely in, uh, in 2008, when that trust company decided that 
they no longer needed my services. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty awful. So did, did you have thoughts of just saying like, well, guess that was my run in the financial services industry. Well, let's see what we're doing next. I, I did, but there, there was so much that went in, went into that event that I was going to do everything to prove them wrong, that they weren't, that was not going to define me. And it's just one of those moments where I was going to turn that into a defining moment. And I, and I have. That's, that's quite a bold mental shift of like, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let that moment control me. I'm going to make it my defining moment to, to make a change. Like, where did that come from for you? Well, it's just that when you know that something isn't right, I'm, I'm the kind of person that just can't let something stay not right. So I just kind of had to push through it and, and move forward. And it was, it, it was, I wasn't going to let it just stay not right. So, you know, going forward with a, a suit was my only way to prove and, and just move forward and, you know, hold my head high. And that's what I did. And so for advisors coming in today to get their career started, is there any uh, particular advice or, or tips you'd give for, I guess, n- newer advisors doesn't even necessarily have to be young by age, could be career changers coming in at a later stage. But like, what would your advice be to new advisors trying to figure out how to navigate some of the journey that you've navigated? Well, definitely explore all the different ways that you can get paid. Look at all the different ways and decide which one is going to resonate for you and your family, because there are a bunch of different ways. Find out how much it costs for you to be an advisor at that firm. So you know what you're what they're investing in you and, and go in, if you're, you know, going in to ask for a job or, you know, looking for a job, know what your worth is. And if you're brand new and you don't have anything just yet, know that you're going to have to work towards that to get, you know, what you eventually want to be paid. Don't come in expecting anything right out of the gate because it's not going to happen. You may just get the opportunity to learn from a really brilliant advisor, and that's quite an education. Not a lot of people get that or got that when they first started out. So that is a, a wonderful opportunity. And I think that is that's something that I would have really enjoyed too. But knowing the different ways to get paid and really understanding it before you just say, gosh, that sounds great. Yeah. So what questions do you wish you had asked when you were trying to interview and find these roles in the first place? Right. Because part of the challenge, I think, is you you don't know what you don't know to ask in the first place. You only find out later, like, oh, I wish I'd asked that. I mean, are there particular things that you would encourage people to ask now and trying to figure this stuff out? Well, I, I should have asked, you know, had I started, if I could go back to my days at Wells Fargo Finance and give me an example of a month of, you know, a base salary and, you know, bringing in one account, give me an example of a, a base salary and this, this product and no new business. Give me an example of no base salary, you know, just to get an example of what that meant with these different scenarios. Because if you can see something in black and white, you're like, oh, oh, I see. 
but if you don't if you if you don't see you know the first ten percent goes to here, this next ten percent goes to the owner, this part goes. Oh, if you don't see that, sometimes it's hard to fathom what they're talking about as far as that grid. So I think for anybody that's thinking about going to a place that pays different on different products, it's it's a good idea to get, in my case, I like to see stuff, to get some examples. And just say, show, show, show me that math. Just show me. Yes. Show me what that looks like and, and how that calculates out. Absolutely. I think that's a very fair question. And I think particularly in a world where, unfortunately, just the for a lot of firms, those grid systems have gotten really complex. I feel like in, in some cases, just because the you know it, it's kind of a complex business and there's a lot of moving parts. In a, in a few I've seen over the years, I'm like, I, I swear they're just making it complex because they're trying to have people be confused and not realize how the math is going to turn out. Not not all the firms are are, are fortunately like that, but I, I get the feeling there are a few. But you know, just saying like, well, hey, here's a hypothetical scenario where I brought in this much business. Like, why don't you do the math for me? Just show me how that comes out. Let me let me see it in black and white on 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 paper and and really take in how these formulas are are going to play out in the real world. So. As we wrap up, this is a podcast around success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, you built this successful career in the industry, navigating as we go and taking a few knocks along the way, which I, I feel like is pretty common for for most of us. It, it sounds like you really feel like now you've gotten to the position that you can be happy in and successful in. But I'm I'm just wondering, like at a personal level now, how do you define success for yourself? This is a little bit of a, you know, we really haven't spent any time in this space. But one of the the areas that I I find myself a little bit frustrated with financial services is that we still kind of have these women's conferences and then regular conferences. Personally, I will feel like we are successful is if we. We don't have to have conferences where women feel that they can find their own knowledge there. I would love to find that by the time I'm retired, that we just have regular conferences that everybody attend together, men and women, and they're, they're attended equally, that we don't have to have separate events. So do you feel like we're we're wrong to be doing that now in the industry or is it like no no we need that now but we also need to get to the point where we don't need that. I don't feel like we're wrong for doing it now. I just hope that at some point it becomes something that we don't need. I just never would have thought that at this point in my career it would still be a thing that we feel that we need to have our own Hmm. conferences. That would personally, you know, I, I just feel like that would be a success if we can finally find our, you know, that women could feel accepted and as financial advisors at these conferences without having their own separate area. I just feel like, right. you know, we're still struggling as female advisors to find our own space. So, so what about at a 
personal level for you? When's the when's the journey done? I'm I really feel like at this point I'm I'm really comfortable with where I am personally with my career. I feel like I'm almost at the point where I could kind of breathe. I'm very happy with what I'm doing. I'm very happy with the people. I, you know, getting people to feel comfortable with me, like I said, as far as the clients that we've kind of folded into the practice. I, I'm feeling very comfortable. I really am. And I, I never thought I would get here. It just seemed, I mean, five, seven years ago, I mean, when I look back into 08 and all that was going on there, it just seemed impossible that I could ever feel that people would come to me as a mentor or that I would, yeah, it just, it seemed so far away. And so what ultimately turned it around for you? If you were that, that down on yourself at the time? I think just pushing through. I think it's just continuing to push through and to continuing to reach out to people and to continuing to, to, to not stop and to continuing to, to learn and, and continuing to try, you know, not giving up, you know, it's just wanting to learn all the time and never giving up. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a powerful message reality for that, that this business is pretty hard. Well, it's, pretty much horrible for everyone in the early years. For a lot of us, it has even more hard points that hit along the way as you go through your your career or building a practice. There's a lot to be said for just the the ability to persevere and push through, particularly when the the biggest determinant for advisor income is is just the number of years that you manage to keep going and doing it with clients and accumulating getting more clients and experience as you go. Right. Well, thank you, Kelly, for joining us and, and sharing the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, I am so thrilled to have had the opportunity to do this. It's just, you know, I've listened to this for so many times. I never thought I would be here. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>